welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. This season, we're delving into eight fundamental building blocks of a great retirement. And perhaps the most important one, of course, is wellness. But that's multiple things, not just one, and it includes emotional health. In my work as an executive coach with corporations, I often help clients on emotional intelligence at work. And one thing I learned early on there is that emotional intelligence is also not one thing. It's multidimensional. The assessment that I'm trained in breaks it down into 15 different dimensions, and those become skills you can concentrate in on selected ones and actually improve your emotional intelligence. And that got me wondering, what's emotional intelligence look like in retirement? That's the topic of our conversation today, and I'm pleased to welcome back two previous guests to our fourth retirement roundtable. This format's a little different. I invite back two of our favorite guests from the past and really allow them to hope them, encourage them to talk amongst themselves. I'll tee up a few, few topics, but I think you'll find an insightful conversation. And rejoining us today are Kate Schroeder and Nick Wignall. Kate Schroeder is a psychotherapist in private practice. She's a licensed professional counselor, nationally certified counselor, and owner of Transformation Counseling, LLC. With over 25 years in the mental health field, her clinical background includes experience as a school counselor, mental health therapist in an urban university's counseling center, individual, couples, group, and family therapist, and clinical researcher. In addition to her private practice, she also teaches graduate courses to counselors and training. Kate joins us again from St. Louis. Nick Wignall is a licensed clinical psychologist who's board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He's also the founder of the popular newsletter, The Friendly Mind, with practical evidence-based advice for emotional health and well-being. It's read by over 50,000 people each week, and his writing's been featured in media outlets like NBC, Business Insider, Inc. Magazine, Aon, and Medium. He's also the author of Find Your Therapy, Practical Guide to Finding Quality Therapy. It's a guide to learning about the most important factors in choosing a therapist and how to go about finding a good one, either for yourself or for someone you love. Nick did his doctoral training in clinical psychology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, including research in human genetics and psychopharmacology. Prior to that, he earned his master's in social sciences from the University of Chicago and a bachelor's in English literature from the University of Dallas. He joins us again today from Albuquerque, New Mexico. You'll find links to both of their bios and other information in the show notes. Katie and Nick, thanks for rejoining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for doing this. It's great to see both of you again, talk with you both again. And I think sometimes when people think about retirement, there's a financial and lifestyle transition, but there's also an emotional transition, which sometimes can be overlooked. There's really a multifaceted set of issues when you transition from full-time work to retirement life. How can people prepare for the emotional side of retiring? Joe, this is such a, a topic near and dear to my heart, I, not just about retirement, but life in general. But I think it's especially relevant in terms of considering retirement and how to move into that. You know, so much research out there now shows that adjusting to retirement has its own set of difficulty and challenges for many, many people, especially for a lot of people who've identified a lot with their work and they've, they've gotten a lot of accolades and self-esteem and, and identification from the work that they do. They often struggle in some cases more than many other people because work was such a big part of their environment. There has been a big, huge association between work and mental health. And so it really underscores the necessity of having conversations like this because we have to think, you know, when we think about retirement, without a doubt, we have to, you know, just like people start saving financially for retirement very early on, beginning that early preparation and exploration of your emotional self and who you are as a person and what brings you meaning is really going to be the key to be able to find balance and integrate long before it comes time to actually hang up hang up your keys and, and move into that retirement place. So my biggest emphasis for folks who are in this part of their life is that if you haven't already, there is definitely a necessity for you to begin exploring who you are. And I'm not talking about you know the who you are in terms of your work. I mean, that is certainly a piece of it, right? Because 
you probably wouldn't be such an avid worker if it didn't get you something from that. But I'm talking about those deeper places of learning who you are about what brings you deep meaning, what gives you purpose, you know, what kinds of people do you like to interact with? And I'm not saying you tolerate, I'm saying what feeds you? And so the years leading up to retirement are incredibly pivotal for increasing this self-awareness. It's, I believe, pretty essential to begin asking yourself questions like, what do I want out of my life? What do I want out of this next part of my life? You know, another piece I think that sometimes doesn't get enough airtime too about this kind of emotional preparation is that not only is it about what do I want, but it's also really important, I think, to explore what's keeping you from not only addressing the difficult feelings about your retirement, but what's keeping you from feeling meaning in your life if that's a situation for you, or what's keeping you from exploring who you are and building self-awareness in the first place. Because when you start this journey early, then you can also begin to learn more about who you are, dealing with the, the obstacles that you discover, learning how to be with your feelings, even if they make you uncomfortable. And then all of this, that's how you're going to begin to really begin to fully understand who you are and what you want to do and what, you know, what is your groove. And so just as lifestyle choices and expectations are going to change based on financial situations, these aspects are also going to really shift based on how emotionally ready you are to slow down and ease into retirement. So simply put, it's only when you really dedicate time and energy to both this practical preparedness, but also emotional preparedness, are you going to be the most successful and be able to maintain it? So by starting early, you know, when the time comes to really move into retirement officially, hopefully by then you will have mastered the things that you need to, or at least gotten a great handle on them to be smoothly kind of gliding down that road with the wind at your back. So I think starting early to learn about this emotional part of who you are is critical. If someone wants to successfully retire, you've got to begin the exploration now. I love that, Kate. It resonates with a lot of my work with folks who are at this stage. One, I actually have a question for you. I was thinking about a lot of my more challenging cases in this sort of arena. And one of the things I found, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is that there's a certain segment of people who have not considered a lot of these things you've been talking about, kind of really diving deep on self-awareness, meaning, purpose, that sort of thing. but they only need a little bit of a nudge. And then they're kind of like, Ooh, I like this. This is fun. I can um, go for it. And those people are, those are people are, they're really fun to work with. And they, again, they don't need much, but there's another segment of people who I guess, frankly, are kind of intimidated by the ideas like discovering my purpose or finding meaning or like, what's my calling after work and these sorts of things. And it's, they almost kind of resist even getting started with this stuff. And of course, these are things you and I think about all the time, right? But for people who aren't used to thinking about these things, or maybe even have even actively resisted them because they feel intimidating, what like what do you do to help get people to kind of get them started on this, frankly, kind of daunting journey? I think like what are what are the little like baby steps that you will work with folks on? I'd, I'd love to hear about your approach to that. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's such a great question. I love that question. Nick. You know, these folks who struggle to kind of begin that exploration about I love these I love working with people like this. I love working with people who, who feel I say stuck, but kind of like, you know, they know they need to take this next step, but but they're not doing it or they can't do it or they they feel daunted by it. So they just don't even start. Because that is in and of itself a very important place where a lot, a lot of work can be done. There's a reason they're not doing this. I mean, most of these people are pretty brilliant people. I mean, they come, I can't tell you, I don't think I've ever had a single person show up to work with me who's been like, I don't know why I'm here. I mean, by the time they find me, they know. They've known for a long time. People are incredibly brilliant. So when they're stuck and they're not taking that next step that they know could be helpful for them, you know, that's the place we begin. That, I kind of call it that place of impasse, is serving a purpose, whether they realize it with the cognitive brain or not. It is serving a crucial purpose for them. And so the task becomes not let's push you through being unstuck. It's let's figure out what being stuck is doing for you. And let's explore that. And let's see what that's protecting you from or distracting you from or giving you a momentary reprieve from. Because when we can get to the core of that, 
I find that people's own innate strive for growth and actualization begins to kick in at a pace that they can handle, at a pace that they can tolerate, whether it looks like what the world thinks or doesn't think. And that's what this is really all about. That's what the core of self-exploration is all about is who am I and how do I tick? Not what the world tells me or, or, or my friends are doing or my colleagues are doing, but what works for me? What's my style? And so stuck or not you know, taking that next step is incredibly important. And to be honest with you, these are some of my most favorite people to work with. I don't know mm. if you had a lot of that in your practice. Yeah. But I heard from a lot of people, you know, I, like you said, I, they were saying to themselves, I knew I should have been doing this for a long time. And I've only just now gotten up the courage to actually, you know, go see a therapist or, or work with a coach or something like that. So, so my mind naturally goes to, well, if, if this is such a problem, like what percentage of people aren't even reaching out to work with someone? And it also kind of makes me think like, what, what's your take on, to what extent can you do this kind of work outside of a traditional sort of coaching or counseling or therapeutic relationship? Like, do you think it's, is it possible for people to do this kind of stuff on their own without the structure and and sort of support of, and if so, like what, what does that look like? If you had one session with someone who was grappling with stuff and all you could do is sort of like help them kind of get started and like, what would you, what would you say to people or how would you kind of encourage them on that journey? If most of it had to be done kind of on their own, I'd love to hear about it. Cause I think a lot about folks who for whatever reason, can't fit into a professional kind of therapeutic relationship. So what, yeah, I'm like, how do we help those folks? Like, where would you kind of point people? I guess I'm, I'm curious to pick your brain on that. Yeah, no, I love this question too. You know, it's, I tell people, it's like going to the gym, right? If I'm wanting to train for something and I go to the gym once a month or two times a year, I may get a little something out of that, but I'm not going to get what I want versus if I were going on a consistent, regular basis. I mean, like you said, we're biased, right? All of us here are probably pretty biased or else we wouldn't be here talking about this kind of thing. But I took, I believe that learning about who we are is probably the most fundamentally important thing, as important as a career and family and whatever else kind of floats your boat. Because you know, you think about it, we get one life and one chance to do the things we want to do in this lifetime. We can't come back. And so we spend so much energy and time and effort into choosing majors in college and building careers and growing businesses and things of this sort, maybe families. But how much time do people truly devote to exploring who they are inside? It's like, who am I inside is the next frontier. And so I think that's a place that I would begin with with clients is that you're going to get out of this process as much as you put into this process. And that's okay. You know, this isn't about pressure or judgment or anything of that sort. This is about, so let's be thoughtful. Let's really examine what do you want and what's it going to take to get there. And so for folks who are like, you know, I just kind of want to scratch the surface with somebody else. I want to do the rest on my own. You know, I think what's really important to identify early on is what do they want to get out of this? What is your need? What do you hope from meeting together one time? that you get. And then we focus on that. You know, I am sure you you do the same. And I know many, many folks do as well. But I always leave that door open too. that. If as you get going, you find that you're getting stuck, then I'm here to reach out too. I personally believe we can do a lot of growth on our own. But to deeply fundamentally transform, we have to do that with some sort of outside help and support. Just, there's just no getting around it. So for me, it's important to determine like, where is this person at? You know, what is it they're trying to do? Are they just trying to kind of make some behavioral changes, come up with some solutions or strategies for certain kind of day-to-day issues or experiences? Or are they the kind of person that's coming that's saying, hey, you know, I haven't, I've tapped into maybe 5%, 10%, 20% of who I really am, my capacity, or my whole life I thought I wanted to be an artist, and now I'm about to go into my retirement and I have this opportunity. And I want to learn how to do it. Well, folks like that who are looking for that deeper transformation, it, to me, there's no way to get there without a guide or a mentor or a teacher helping you. Because what we get stuck by is not the things we know about ourselves. We get stuck by the things we don't know. And those are things we don't know on purpose. So it's like that one little spot on your back that you're never going to see by yourself. We can't see those things. We have to have somebody on our side 
pulling along with us going, hey, I see something over here. Let's look at this and explore this. So I kind of feel like from the moment someone first reaches out to me, the work's already beginning because there's so much in that exchange about, you know, their levels of motivation. And I also support people a lot about where you are. This isn't about pushing yourself and becoming something you're not in the process of trying to figure out who you are. So it's such rewarding work to really help people be able to tap back into who they are and, and do that in a way that resonates with them. What's been Mm -hmm. your experience with, with folks like that? What have you found? Yeah, something, I think a strong correlation I've seen with folks in this stage and kind of how they, what their trajectory is like, do they tend to kind of thrive going into retirement or sort of sputter along and get stuck? Just a, such a strong correlation is the vibrancy of people's social lives and how strongly that correlates with not just overall sort of emotional health and well-being, but I think specifically with self-understanding and transitioning into new sort of a new phase of your life and new goals. I mean, Kate, I know you're a, you're an expert in attachment. And something I think about a lot is that attachment is often talked about in terms of our, our early years, which are, of course, are incredibly formative. We learn who we are largely kind of mediated through other people. But, but I think a, a mistake I see is that <laughs> we kind of assume that that stops once we're, you know, five, six, whatever, certainly a teenager. But no, we're constantly discovering who we are through other people, right? And so the, to me, the importance of, it's a kind of a hokey term, but role models, peer models, people out in your life, not even necessarily experts or, or coaches or whatever, but to take it upon yourself to try to cultivate a sort of social environment and network that will be kind of in, indirectly, at least conducive to your growth. Because we all know in, in any, you know, if you want to be a great baseball player, like you got to hang around baseball players, you're going to get good at baseball if you're not hanging around baseball players, right? Or if you, if you want to be a musician or whatever, like whatever it is, it really helps to be surrounded by the type of people we, we want to learn from and, and grow towards. And so I think investing in one's social life before and, and immediately after retirement is so important, including for this project of self-awareness and personal discovery and growth. And I just think we learn so much through other people. It's such a shame when I see people, they retire and it's like, well, they've, maybe they've got their spouse and you know, once a month, they meet up with a buddy from work or something like that. And I just think so much of, of emotional health and well-being rests on the foundation of our social lives and our relationships. And so being really intentional about investing in those relationships coming out of this period is crucial because you're going to lose a lot of them once you're not working anymore. It's just reality. It's unfortunate, but a lot of those are going to go away. So to what extent are we really proactively and intentionally building up kind of social resources for ourselves? Such a great point and so important. And I want to toss a new topic on the table if I could to get your thoughts on it. I do some work in the corporate world on emotional intelligence in the workplace. And it led me to start thinking about what would an emotionally intelligent retirement look like? How does it play out in that setting? How would you explain what emotional intelligence is? Hmm. I basically think about emotional intelligence as understanding how emotions work and how to work with them in a healthy way, which is pretty broad and fairly general. But one thing I like to do that's a little bit (laughs) non-traditional in this world, uh, Daniel Goldman would probably get angry at me for this, but I like to kind of separate out what I call emotional intelligence, which is the understanding part you're becoming aware of and exploring and you're understanding your emotions. And again, ideally or optimally, how how to work with them, especially when they're difficult. But that's it's a pretty separate thing from what I call emotional fitness which is like, what are you doing on a regular basis to increase your capacity to deal with difficult emotions when they come up? So to me, emotional intelligence is kind of the first half, which is necessary, but rarely sufficient for kind of emotional growth and health. And so, but I think there's a lot of work for us to do just in the emotional intelligence realm. And to my bias is, it really starts with curiosity. Like kind of emotional curiosity is sort of the, the beginning of emotional intelligence. And to me, 
that's difficult because a lot of us, because of our childhoods or however, however we go through life, we a lot of people fall into the extremes of either kind of obsessing over or avoiding our emotions. We get kind of fixated on them and overly attached to them, or we're just kind of like, Ugh, those things, like get them out of here. <laughs> and we got to, you know, no, 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 no. And both of those extremes tend to be pretty unhealthy in the long run. They get problematic. But there, I kind of see curiosity, emotional, getting curious about our emotions, what we're experiencing, and all the things related to emotions, you know, our thoughts, our physical sensations, beliefs, expectations, all those things that tie in with, with emotions. So I think cultivating curiosity, just a little bit of inquisitiveness about, oh, I'm like, I'm feeling sad and I don't understand why. Well, instead of immediately going to, oh, what's wrong with me? Like, how come I can't shake this? But getting kind of critical, obsessing and trying to get rid of it, it could be like, oh, that's, it's uncomfortable. I don't like feeling sad, but that's kind of interesting. What's going on there? So cultivating, I think a, a underappreciated part of emotional intelligence is in, in very small ways, cultivating a sort of curiosity mindset towards our emotions, especially difficult experiences, instead of those two extremes we all tend to fall into, which are kind of getting obsessive and critical about our emotions or avoidant of them. So I'll, I'll shut up there and let Kate say her piece, but I think that's an underappreciated aspect of, of emotional intelligence is that, that curiosity piece. I love, I love that distinction, Nick. I, I so agree with you. It's like emotional intelligence is, is multifaceted, right? It's not just the awareness of your feelings or someone else's feelings. I mean, that's a critical first place for sure. But it's also, you call it this kind of fitness piece to it, which I love that. I'm, I'm an athlete, so I love putting it in those terms. But to me, it's also that ability to regulate your feelings, which is essentially what you're saying is, okay, so how do I be with my feelings, right? So you know, when I think about emotional intelligence, it's funny, I always smile because I know that that's the buzzword, right? And that's the word that most of us walking around on the earth can understand and relate to. It's a little safer than feelings, right? But you know, it's that capacity to be aware of, control and express your emotions, you know, handle your relationships judiciously with responsibility, maturity. But it's not only just about your own emotions. It's also about making room for it and putting the effort in understanding the emotions of other people around you too. And, you know, one of the big things about feelings, right? So we all talk about, well, how do I learn how to be with my feelings is, is that feelings don't happen in our brain. Feelings happen in our body. Feelings are, are energetic experiences. They are emotional energetic responses to things that are happening around us. So feelings really are a no-brainer. So I always cringe a little bit when people try to go after their feelings with all these cognitive ideas because I'm like, as humans, we are a meaning-making species. So understanding is critical. That's a fantastic place to begin. But it's way more than that. Talking about being, being sad is drastically different than feeling sad. And so to me, emotional intelligence also includes that piece that says, so how do I make room for my sadness? Or how do I make room for my fear or my helplessness or my whatever, my joy? You know, most people, it's a great experiment to try. Most people don't really struggle too much when it comes to what we think of some of those more fun feelings, right? Like excited and joyful and comforted and peaceful and happy. We all go, okay, that's great. How do I keep going with that one? But we struggle, a lot of people struggle with the other batch of feelings that, you know, we go, ooh, I don't want to feel that, or I hate when I'm anxious or afraid or frightened. And the truth is, is we have to have the full range of feelings. A, if we're alive, that's our clue. It means I feel the whole continuum of feelings. I'm not stuck over here or stuck over here. You know, anybody who's stuck at either end, kind of like what you were saying, Nick, you know, either just so fixated in all of these difficult experiences. Or on the other end, going, no, everything's great. I'm nothing's bothering me today. Not that we don't have those moments, but you know, they live on those edges. That's where I think we have to get super curious about. You know, I tell people all the time in my work, I say, you know, therapy isn't about feeling better, which usually makes them drop their jaw and kind of look at me like this. I'm like, <laughs> it's about learning how to be better with your feelings. That's what it is. This isn't life isn't about feeling good all of the time. It's about learning how to manage, be with, regulate, express, learn from 
your feelings, no matter what they are. And that's the critical thing about feelings is feelings, I think, get such a bad press sometimes, unless they're the good ones. I say, quote unquote, good ones, right? But the truth is we need them all because every feeling that shows up is a message about, generally speaking, what works for us or what doesn't work for us. And so if all we're doing is chasing after the rainbow, looking for just the fun, yummy feelings, we're going to get lost at some point or another. I mean, we might be able to ride that wave for a while, even for some decades. But lo and behold, what happens when a major life transition comes along and kind of throws us a curveball, we're going to be struggling. We're going to be floundering for a little while. That's just what happens in transition. And so now there's an, an equally bigger struggle because they've never learned how to have those other feelings too and learn from them. And so I think that a big part of what emotionally intelligent people have is, like you said, is this curiosity, but also this openness, this sort of drive that there's more. I want to know more. And a humility, right? Because I say all the time, I remind myself all the time, it's not what you know about yourself that's going to get you anywhere in life or not. It's, it's what we don't know that keeps us from getting there. That's the piece we have to work on. And so to me, emotionally intelligent people are willing to do that. They're willing to feel a little something along the way and understand that life is up and down. And in the process of discovering myself, that's going to be part of the learning is making room for all of those feelings. And really, you know, the, the last thing I'll say about this is I, I think it's so crucial to help people learn. And you know, we talk about meaning and purpose, right? That comes to us through the form of our feelings over time. What we have to do is also make sure that we have a strong connection to our bodies and who we are because our bodies are going to be the conduit for so much wisdom and information about what feeds us and what doesn't. And, you know, as a society, we've lost that connection. And I mean, for lots of reasons, right? It, it happens. If you didn't grow up in a family either where it was highly emphasized, you know, over time, things atrophy, but really kind of learning how to connect back to that source of wisdom is such a crucial place. So I think for me, one of the, the biggest qualities I find in emotionally intelligent people, in addition to curiosity, is openness. Like, let's get out of the box. Let's explore some things. Let's consider the idea that you may not know everything there is to know about yourself. That's a really important stance to work from, I think. And I just want to be open about the fact that I, of course, realized that I went right to the emotional intelligence label as opposed to feelings, which would have been a stretch for me. So I <laughs> take your point and recognize that. <laughs> and then let me just ask a follow up for both of you, if I could. What habits do you see in emotionally fit people and people who are connected with their feelings? I think one of the things that I see is there's a dedication, there's a desire to know more. There's sort of a, a restlessness or an agitation, which some people might hear that and go, why would that be a positive thing? But that's what motivates us, right? All growth is preceded by some degree of frustration or agitation. So these, you know, what I see, qualities or habits that I see in emotionally fit or intelligent people are people who recognize that, okay, this isn't working. And instead of doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting something to shift, they're able to understand and go, okay, what I'm doing must not be working, so I need some help. And so there's a humility in them as well that says, I don't know everything and I need some help. And I think those are two really critical places. And then a perseverance. I like to say that a lot of the people I work with, I call them old souls, right? You know, the age of our soul doesn't, it's not chronological. So I'm sure you've all encountered young people, even children sometimes, who say things that just blow your mind. It's like, how do they know that? That's an old soul. And so I find that, you know, for a lot of people who I work with, you know, that they they have an older soul. And that doesn't mean if you don't or you're, you know, coming from a different sort of background, that it's hopeless for you. Not at all. That's where the pieces around openness and humility and curiosity come in to really motivate somebody to say. I'm not okay with this. This I'm not satisfied. And satisfaction is key. I, I would much rather hang my hat on satisfaction than I would happiness. Because satisfaction implies that, you know, I know how to bring myself back to a place of meaning and purpose. When I'm not satisfied, I, I listen to my frustration or I 
listen to my agitation as a clue that there's something needs to shift. And that's really important in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I love the emphasis on humility. I think that's a, it's an underappreciated word in our realm and in this, like something I want to reflect on going forward is how to, how kind of an attitude of humility fits in with emotional intelligence and, and emotional health generally. I love that Kate. So a couple of things, I kind of, Two thoughts to this question. I had the benefit, Joe, of uh, having Kate answer first. I, I, two things got to pop up for me while I was thinking about this question. Um, the first, on kind of a broader, high level, when I think about habits that emotionally intelligent people have, one of the first is a, a mindset of thinking about emotions mechanically rather than morally. And what I mean by that, I started using this phrase, thinking about emotions mechanically. When I, in my practice, I work, I work around, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there's a lot of national labs around here. So I work with a lot of engineers, I have a lot of engineers. And so I, like, hopefully like a good therapist, I tried to sort of see what language they were using for things and try to, you know, use appropriate metaphors. And so I adopted a lot of this kind of engineering speak. But there, there was a really profound lesson in there, I found that a lot of people who struggle with emotional intelligence and being self-aware they have an immediately moralistic take on their emotions, especially difficult emotions. It's like, if I feel bad, it is bad, right? To feel anxious is bad. Either the emotion is bad, anxiety is bad, and I got to get rid of it. What can I do to cope with it or get rid of it right away? Or I'm bad for feeling that way, right? As opposed to, oh, there's this thing that it hurts. Maybe it hurts. It's painful. Or it's uncomfortable. Or maybe it feels good. I, I, Kate, I like your uh, fun emotions. I can't stand the like positive versus negative way of describing emotions. It's nonsense if you ask me. But like pleasurable and, and painful, right? Uncomfortable versus fun. That's one way to think about it. So I think there's a, a high level habit that emotionally intelligent people have, which is they don't moralize their emotions and their emotional experiences. They don't go immediately. Like emotions are, emotions are like the weather, right? If it rains on you, is that good or bad? No, rain is not a moral thing, right? You might not like it if you were hoping to go play tennis, right? But you might really like it if you, like me, you live in the desert and your garden won't grow because there's no rain. <laughs> so it, it, it's very context specific. Anyway, so I think that, that on a high level, thinking about emotions mechanically rather than morally, which a lot of, even if you don't grow up religious, a lot of us have this kind of judgmental moral attitude to our emotions. And so that's, that's really worth spending some time reflecting on and then another like really just super specific thing that I used to work with folks with a lot is avoiding intellectualizing your emotions and instead talking about them plainly. So an in intellectualized emotion is where you, you use a concept or an idea to describe how you feel right, emotionally or physically, right? So you had a rough day at work, you come home, your spouse asks, you know, how you doing? You say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm super, I'm really stressed. Well, stress is not an emotion. It's a concept that we often, because it's uncomfortable to just say, uh, this presentation was a disaster and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my job. Afraid is an emotion. <laughs> stress is not an emotion. <laughs> so anyway, I, I would say, say it like a six-year-old. Like I have a six-year-old daughter, right? And so my kids are wonderfully straightforward about how they feel. If they're, they're angry, they're just going to say, I'm mad, I'm angry. If they're sad, they're going to say, dad, I'm sad. Right? If they're afraid, they're going to say they're afraid. But we adults, we kind of, we get in this habit over time of, because it feels, it almost feels, if you think about it, if you're an adult listening, and I assume most people listening are adults, <laughs> ask yourself, when was the last time you said, I feel sad? I guarantee it was probably a while ago, right? Instead, it's something like, well, I'm upset, or, or we use metaphors like I'm blue, or I'm kind of down, or things like that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those. But a, a very small but powerful habit I think people can build to start to improve emotional awareness and intelligence is to notice that urge to intellectualize, to avoid the actual emotion by using a concept or an idea. And instead, like say it like a six-year-old, like how would a little kid describe how I'm feeling right now? And just say that. Even maybe it's to someone else, you're in a conversation, or maybe in, just in your own self-talk when you're reflecting on how you're feeling, right? Use language that's plain and direct when it comes to your, your feelings and your emotions, rather than these kind of convoluted, overly conceptual intellectualizations. And that's one way, I think, to start to get, it's a cheesy word, but in touch with what you're feeling. 
which is, which is the kind of the doorway to emotional intelligence and understanding yourself on that level a lot better. Great advice. I was last sad in December, but it was over a baseball trade, which mm. doesn't count, which doesn't count. But I did That's say perfectly it. valid, perfectly valid. <laughs> but it, but I, I did, which was rare for me, say it like a six-year-old. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great, it's a great, great point. And when people get into retirement, they quickly notice there's a lot to be gained, freedom, flexibility, all the things they've dreamed about, worked toward. But there's also a lot of losses that show up and things like sense of purpose, who they are professionally, their identity. What thoughts do you have on the impact of those losses and what can people do to navigate this? I think that it's interesting because there is a lot to be gained from retirement, right? People are working so hard throughout their lives to prepare for this. But the losses are, are certainly something I think is a wonderful thing to have discussions about prior to retirement because it's going to happen, right? Challenges like coping with the loss of, of your career identity, with the loss of your social support network, which Nick talked about a little bit ago. You know, no longer being able to receive that recognition. You know, there's a loss there around your work accomplishments and bonuses or just, you know, shout outs and things. You're going to, you know, where do you find that kind of validation again? I also think that for some people, and although it might often be a little controversial, but I think that sometimes spending more time with their spouse and with themselves, like you said, there's a loss of freedom in the sense that, you know, when we're at work and we're focused on other things and we're really building that sense of self through our work, all of a sudden when we lose that, it absolutely is going to be linked to this idea of who am I, which is so important if pre-retirement, you know, that there is support in a family for everyone having their own life and their own sense of self. I think that transition into retirement becomes much less of a speed bump because all of a sudden now it's like, well, I've developed all these other parts of myself along the way. So yes, I'm losing this identity as a banker or tech person or whatever. But at the same time, I've got all these other meaningful parts of who I am to expand. And so there are things that people are going to have to to learn to live with. But you know what, what so much research shows time and time again, especially for people who haven't put a lot of pre-retirement work into the emotional development piece, is that a lot of people then are going to experience then acute, more chronic anxiety, depression, loneliness, feelings of grief and loss. I mean, what was at the end of last year, the Surgeon General, I mean, not what, within the last few months, indicated that loneliness is the new epidemic. And without a doubt, I 100% agree. And I was sad and happy at the same time to see this finally becoming so public because we do have a crisis. You know, we have in many ways evolved as a society, but in many ways, relationally, I think we've taken some step backs because now, you know, it's so easy to text your neighbor about a, an extra thing of milk or could you pick up my package while I'm getting we don't connect as easily and as well as we do anymore. And, you know, I agree that going into this part of life, right, which is still a big chunk of time, you know, we think about retirement at the end of life as like, well, you know, you're just going to kind of go pull up at home and, and ride this thing out. But for many people, retirement spans almost half of their, you know, the time from retirement on, they're still 30, 40 years in there for them. So there's still almost for many people can be as much life left as what they've lived to this point. And so really being able to understand that loss is going to be a part, loss is a part of any transition. And so the more or better I'm able to deal with my feelings around that and cope, it, you know, in satisfying ways, then the more likely that transition is going to go. And, you know, one of the things that I want to say about a point we were talking about a minute ago is I agree wholeheartedly with, with you, Nick, that a big tangle for many, many people is that there's a lot of judgment placed on feelings as good and bad. And that's a core underlying theme in the work that I do with folks is to help them get to a place where feelings aren't good and bad. They, they just are. And so I like to use words satisfying and dissatisfying. And then there's, of course, all ranges within that. But even unpleasant feelings can be very satisfying if we have the adequate support inside and around us to feel them, as odd as that might sound to some people. 
So again, it comes back to you know, these losses around retirement. It comes back to how emotionally fit am I? How emotionally intelligent am I? How well equipped am I to deal with the full range of feelings? Because that's going to be present in every life transition, whether it's retirement, moving, starting new jobs, beginning a family. It's that's life. If there's one guarantee, it's that it's always going to be changing. And so we're far better to equip, be equipped to deal with that if we really work on developing this, this really critical piece of who we are in terms of our emotional existence. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so Joe, on that, on that question, something I, I think a lot about when I, when I used to work with clients, there's, well, there's this old saying in, in, and we're all athletes here, but in sports, and people would say the, the best offense is a good defense. But I think when it comes to coming out of retirement and these, these questions of identity and purpose and loss, really, I think you can flip that to pretty good effect, which is the best defense is a good offense. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of people get stuck trying to cope with loss, trying to mitigate the effects of a lot like, oh my God, I'm not, you know, I, I was this partner, you know, as a partner, a VP in this big company, I had so much prestige and, and influence and respect and all that. And like, how do I deal with the loss of that? And I'm not saying that's not an important question. There's a sense of proportionality where if all your time and energy is going to mitigating and coping with the lo- one particular loss in one aspect of your identity, there's opportunity cost there. That's all time and energy that could be put toward what can I build? What can I bring in? What new aspects of my identity can I uncover or construct or whatever kind of metaphor you want to use? My guess is that most people would be far better off channeling more of their energy in that direction rather than putting it all into playing defense and coping with a particular loss. And I think because it, Kate, you mentioned this, um, you alluded to this anyway, the overall mindset is like, this is who I am. And now it's gone. And like, I'm a shell of myself now because of that. No, that was one part of who you were at this stage of life. <laughs> there are almost an infinite number of possibilities going forward. And that's, you know, that sounds nice. You're listening to this. You're like, yeah, yeah, okay. That sounds nice. But to really think about that, like, what would that mean if I saw myself as full of potential options going forward? Like, there's so much, this gets into all of Carol Dweck's growth mindset stuff, but it's thinking about how can I play offense rather than getting stuck playing defense 100% of the time? What can I do to go out and forge new aspects of my identity? Find new purposes, right? You don't have to have one capital P purpose, right? You can have lots of purposes and to go out and cultivate those. So I think it's, it's kind of, not surprisingly, as a psychologist, it's a kind of a mindset thing is my way of answering this question. But more offense, less defense, I guess, is my, my hot take on that one. Well put and memorable. And I think a great, great mindset to take into it. I just wanted to share a real quick story. I had a gift when I was literally 30. I was in graduate school. I was working full-time going to graduate school at nights. I start my day in New York, I'd end up in Philadelphia. Uh, so that a little crazy. But it was well worth it because one of the courses I took was taught by an adjunct who was an active CEO. And one day, I'll never forget, he said, his first day of class, said, I want you to share a lesson I learned so that all of you won't go through this. So don't ever tie who you are to your office, your title, other things. And said, I did that. And it was, it was a big mistake that I'm learning. He was actually retiring the next year. And it was great advice, which came in handy for me because in the subsequent year, I had six offices in one, in one year. Uh, so, so I got to practice that really quickly. But I think that was, that was very good advice. And, and the other thing you talked about earlier was, Kate, you brought up loneliness. And I want to avoid my tendency to over-intellectualize things. And I don't have a quick talk like a six-year-old about it. But I saw a chart and I'll include this in the show notes that I sent to each of you. It's in the Wall Street Journal. It stood out to me because it graphed how much time people spend alone over the decades of their lives and how much it increases from 50 to 60, 70 and beyond. And I just wanted to get your takes on what are the possible implications for mental and emotional health and fitness that really may come from increased time alone? And what should people do? Because I don't think sometimes people expect all of that. I think... It's very hard for me not to, you know, in some ways, I think I'm, in a, I'm more of a sociologist than a psychologist in that I think 
all of the good stuff I think about and help people with when it comes to psychology and how the brain works and, and our relationship with ourselves and identity and purpose and all that kind of stuff. I think there's a really strong case to be made that in some ways that's, that's like the tip of the iceberg and underneath the iceberg is our social life, our relational life with other people. And it's, it's so easy to just not see that at all or to underestimate the importance of that kind of social fabric for how we experience hardship, challenges, joys, excitements, all sorts of things. It's all kind of like rests in that grounding. So I like, I see this chart and I think as a mental health professional, it's terrifying. <laughs> you just know, like you don't be a therapist very long. When you see someone and they, you talk to them for their first session and you ask them about, well, what's your social life like right now? And it's, they're largely alone. All it, like you get worried, like red flags start going up. Not, that is not predictive of good things going forward. So there's this strange way in which I think the, the bet in a lot of ways, especially coming out of into this stage of our lives, the best way to improve your, I think, emotional health overall could very well be to invest in your relational health, to really be proactive. And, that, and that's the thing. I think a combination of school and careers trains us, a lot of us anyway, to be a little lazy when it comes to our social lives. We acquire relationships just because, you know, we're working with people and they just kind of fall into our lap. And so we, we, get, we fall out of practice at making friends and joining groups and building community. And that is something that we, we need to be intentional about, to be really proactive about. And that might sound a little intimidating, uh, building community, yikes, <laughs> sounds daunting. But it could be as simple as, I was just talking to my aunt who, who retired six months ago, and she was saying, you know, I've never been depressed in my life. But for the first four months, like, I think I was kind of depressed. I wasn't suicidal or anything like that. But like, I've never felt like this before. And then she said, but you know what the one thing that turned it around for me was? I didn't go to therapy. I didn't, you know, I didn't start doing any sort of deep exploration. I went on meetup.com and I found this group of people, who, women who had recently retired. It was like a little social club. And she went up and she joined. And now she has all these new amazing friends and like, I kind of opt her out of this. But now it's not the only thing, right? But it can be as simple as something like that, being really intentional about like relationships aren't just things that happen or that go away or come into our lives. I mean, they can be, but I think we, we really need to be deliberate and proactive and intentional about starting, even if it's in very small ways and hopefully early before we need them, starting to build sort of a web or a network of relationships that, Kate, like you said, that really feed us, that fill our tanks. So many relationships are either transactional or really sap us of, of energy. But to be proactive about like the universe isn't just going to give us good, healthy, inspiring relationships. We like anything else in life, like we have to kind of put in the work to start to do that. So I think that's my reaction to that, that chart you sent over, Joe, which is just a kind of terrifying, but also it presents us with a, a challenge that I think we all can meet in our own ways. I love what you said, Nick. I, I so appreciate the, the construct of considering how, you know, when we're working or we're in school or whatever, you know, we've, it's easier to meet people than it is when we're not. And so it does kind of, I think, again, our ability to put ourselves out there and meet other people and build community does, can kind of atrophy. We do get a little lazy about that because it's just kind of a built in opportunity. Yeah, I think it's, it's, you can't think about having, basically from kindergarten, you've gone somewhere five out of the seven days and you've been around multiple groups of people all day long for what, 40, 50, 60 years that all of a sudden that's not going to be a really significant thing to have to work through. And you know, one of the things about loneliness, and I think this became so evident after the pandemic and during the pandemic around how suddenly all of our social opportunities were just completely stopped. And how much people, I think, started to become aware of the value of connection with others and even transactional connections. I mean, sure, meaning comes from those deeper sort of authentic, meaningful connections, but even transactional connection at the grocery store or the post office or at a meeting at work, you know, they still give us something. And so, you know, loneliness is probably, well, as it's been indicated, it's, it's our epidemic now. And it is a huge, has a huge impact on people's mental health and people's well-being. 
sometimes after retirement, it's kind of like what you were describing with your aunt. You know, there can be a, a sense of listlessness or kind of aimlessness when there's no longer this place to be and something to do every day with built-in social opportunities. And so I do think that in this critical place of life, that not only is community essential, but also for those people who struggle to uh, put themselves out there. I think that's where that growth work can really come in that says, okay, what's blocking me from getting this need met? I know I need community and I'm really struggling to do that. And for some people, that's easy to do. You know, people who are more extroverted and they just have those built-in skill sets. But for a lot of people, especially for introverts, which is, you know, another facet of the work that I do with people, you know, is work a lot with the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram to learn about those parts of who we are. It's challenging and it is daunting. And so, you know, working with people to discover like, okay, what's blocking me? From getting out there or putting myself out there and working through those pieces, it frees up the energy to go connect because at the core of all, we're social species. We are wired to connect. Even if it means, you know, once or twice with people or whatever, we're wired to connect. That is our innate motivation inside of us as humans. So if people are struggling with that, and of course, that's going to have a really negative impact on mental health and well-being over time then I think that really becomes pretty important to say, okay, I need to get some help and figure out what's blocking me. And some people are going to want to do that deeper work. And some people are going to say, I don't really care what's blocking me. I just need to shift and change it. So it doesn't matter really where you fall on the continuum, but building community is critical. I think that's probably one of the most critical things we all need, whether we're in retirement, pre-retirement or younger years, is we have to have support from our community. And when people, when that breaks down for people, I see a lot of mental health issues emerge because of that piece. And I really appreciate this conversation. Was wondering if we're free for one final question, a short one, just to get a take to close things out for people, because we've covered a lot of ground and it's been very meaningful. How can people learn to be more emotionally intelligent in their retirement? How can they prepare for the transition? One or two tips or recommendations to leave them with? I think my, this might be a little unusual, but find a retirement mentor role model. And what I mean is find someone who you think is really doing retirement well and just try and spend more time with them or ideally three or four of them. And my, the rationale there is I would bet whether it's deliberate or not, people who are making that transition route well and really taking advantage of this new phase of life they are emotionally intelligent. They've figured that out, at least to a certain degree. Right? And again, whether they made a big project and did it explicitly or met, whether they just sort of like found their way into it, can learn so much. Like we learn so much from other people. And there's all sorts of stuff you can, you can read, you can do therapy, you can, there's all sorts of stuff you can do proactively on your own. And th those are wonderful. But I think, may, again, maybe an underappreciated way to kind of become more emotionally intelligent into retirement is to figure out who can I learn from? Who can I model? Right? Who are some role, honestly, who are some role models? It sounds strange to imagine yourself, you're 65 and you're thinking, who are my role models? It's a perfect time. We always need and benefit from role models. So find a role model and just, it's not, you don't have to sign a contract and get them to agree to anything, but just like meet them for coffee once a month or to try and hang out with them, spend more time around people like that. And it's amazing how much of this stuff can actually kind of happen via osmosis. Like we're such good social learners. We don't appreciate it all the time. So yeah, I think find a, find a role model. That's why I jump in for a minute to echo that. It's a great idea. I've had a number of my clients do that. And what they also find is that people who are thriving in retirement love to share their lessons learned. It's never linear. It's always fits and starts and things that they've done. And it saves people a lot of time and can give you inspiration and ideas that you hadn't really considered before. So I think that's a great idea. Yeah, and I love that. And I think probably the thing that I would encourage people to kind of remember about this part of life is that, as you said, Nick, we're still developing, right? Eric Erickson had all these stages of development up until like kind of late or early adulthood. And then like it kind of just fades off into the sunset. Everybody else is on their own. But, you know, there's been some more research since then that's kind of outlining now these later stage periods of life and development. And so we're still going through developmental phases as we age. It doesn't stop. 
just like we we uh, sat up first and then we crawled and then we walked and then we ran. We're still developing and growing as human beings now. You know, the end of life is still life. The latter years is still part of life. And so I think that's that's just a fundamental kind of background piece that is is really valuable to take no matter who you are and whatever place you are in life is that we still have needs. We still have developmental tasks. And I think probably the thing that I would say would help people learn to be more emotionally intelligent in retirement is to understand that difficult moments and difficult experiences are actually opportunities. You know, and that's, again, we hear that sometimes said in very cliche ways, but it's very true. I mean, all growth is preceded by some kind of difficulty, some kind of frustration, some kind of agitation. And so just because you might struggle doesn't mean all is lost. It actually means you're on the cusp of something huge and you may have the support inside of yourself to ride through that on your own and you may not. And so that's where you know having that social support network around you too, I think can be really valuable to give us that feedback and to share with us when maybe we're not operating at uh, the highest level of functioning that we can. Sometimes we don't know that until someone close to us says, hey, you're doing okay. So really learning how to lean into a difficulty as opposed to trying to stay away from it or avoid it because it's going to happen. That again is part of life too. Thank you both for great enriching conversation, a lot of wisdom, a lot of practical things that people can benefit from hearing your insights. So thank you both. Great to talk with you both again. You bet. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. So there are a lot of things to take away from this conversation today with Kate and Nick. Yours may be very different from mine. You may be in a different place in terms of emotional intelligence than I am. But here are three things I noted and compare them with yours. Number one, get to know the current version of you. I was struck by Kate's comment that you may not know everything there is to know about yourself. For those of us of a certain age, it may be tempting to think, well, we know ourselves very well. We may not know the current version of you as well as we think, and definitely not the future you. So step back, take some time to explore who you really are now and want to become. And Kate suggested a number of very good reflective questions to explore. What brings you deep meaning? What brings you purpose? What kinds of learning are you excited about? What brings you joy? And then she noted it's wise to follow with what's keeping you from some of those things now. So take on that learning quest, learning about you. Number two, say it like a six-year-old. I'm underlying this one because I'm certainly guilty of what Nick talked about in terms of intellectualizing how we talk about emotions. And I'm also guilty of simplistically labeling them good or bad. So be simple about labeling it like a six-year-old. Call it like it is but avoid simplistic labeling, good or bad. And while I'm more comfortable talking about emotional intelligence, I take Kate's point that just focus on feelings. Don't intellectualize. Number three, who's your retirement role model? This is a great suggestion that came up today, and I think it has, again, multiple aspects to it. Who is living the way in terms of being uh, tied into their emotions that you would like to emulate, who's thriving in retirement life. And as Nick pointed out, think not just about one person, but several people who you can learn from, who you can model, who you can really get some lessons learned from. It can save you a lot of time. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Our mission here is to help you retire smarter by exploring different dimensions and the key building blocks of a satisfying life in retirement. It's about so much more than money. Thanks for listening.